Chapter Five of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Five: The Altar of the Flaming God. It was at the moment that Tarzan turned from the closed door to pursue his way to the outer world. The thing came without warning. One instant all was quiet and stability. The next, and the world rocked. The tortured sides of the narrow passageway split and crumbled. Great blocks of granite, dislodged from the ceiling, tumbled into the narrow way, choking it, and the walls bent inward upon the wreckage. Beneath the blow of a fragment of the roof, Tarzan staggered back against the door to the treasure room, his weight pushed it open, and his body rolled inward upon the floor. In the great apartment where the treasure lay, less damage was wrought by the earthquake. A few ingots toppled from the higher tiers, a single piece of the rocky ceiling splintered off and crashed downward to the floor, and the walls cracked, though they did not collapse. There was but the single shock. No other followed to complete the damage undertaken by the first. Werper, thrown to his length by the suddenness and violence of the disturbance, staggered to his feet when he found himself unhurt. Groping his way toward the far end of the chamber, he sought the candle which Tarzan had left stuck in its own wax upon the protruding end of an ingot. By striking numerous matches, the Belgian at last found what he sought, and when, a moment later, the sickly rays relieved the Stygian darkness about him, he breathed a nervous sigh of relief, for the impenetrable gloom had accentuated the terrors of his situation. As they became accustomed to the light, the man turned his eyes toward the door. His one thought now was of escape from this frightful tomb, and as he did so he saw the body of the naked giant lying stretched upon the floor just within the doorway. Werper drew back in sudden fear of detection, but a second glance convinced him that the Englishman was dead. From a great gash in the man's head a pool of blood had collected upon the concrete floor. Quickly the Belgian leaped over the prostrate form of his erstwhile host, and without a thought of succor for the man in whom, for aught he knew, life still remained, he bolted for the passageway and safety. But his renewed hopes were soon dashed. Just beyond the doorway he found the passage completely clogged and choked by impenetrable masses of shattered rock. Once more he turned and re-entered the treasure vault. Taking the candle from its place, he commenced a systematic search of the apartment, nor had he gone far before he discovered another door in the opposite end of the room, a door which gave upon creaking hinges to the weight of his body. Beyond the door lay another narrow passageway. Along this Werper made his way, ascending a flight of stone steps to another corridor twenty feet above the level of the first. The flickering candle lighted the way before him, and a moment later he was thankful for the possession of this crude and antiquated luminant which a few hours before he might have looked upon with contempt, for it showed him just in time a yawning pit, apparently terminating the tunnel he was traversing. Before him was a circular shaft. He held the candle above it and peered downward. Below him, at a great distance, he saw the light reflected back from the surface of a pool of water. He had come upon a well. He raised the candle above his head and peered across the black void. 
and there upon the opposite side he saw the continuation of the tunnel. But how was he to span the gulf? As he stood there measuring the distance to the opposite side, and wondering if he dared venture so great a leap, there broke suddenly upon his startled ears a piercing scream which diminished gradually until it ended in a series of dismal moans. The voice seemed partly human, yet so hideous that it might well have emanated from the tortured throat of a lost soul writhing in the fires of hell. The Belgian shuddered and looked fearfully upward, for the scream had seemed to come from above him. As he looked he saw an opening far overhead, and a patch of sky pinked with brilliant stars. His half-formed intention to call for help was expunged by the terrifying cry. Where such a voice lived no human creatures could dwell. He dared not reveal himself to whatever inhabitants dwelt in the place above him. He cursed himself for a fool that he had ever embarked upon such a mission. He wished himself safely back in the camp of Achmet Zek, and would almost have embraced an opportunity to give himself up to the military authorities of the Congo, if by so doing he might be rescued from the frightful predicament in which he now was. He listened fearfully, but the cry was not repeated, and at last, spurred to desperate means, he gathered himself for the leap across the chasm. Going back twenty paces, he took a running start, and at the edge of the wall leaped upward and outward in an attempt to gain the opposite side. In his hand he clutched the sputtering candle, and as he took the leap the rush of air extinguished it. In utter darkness he flew through space, clutching outward for a hold should his feet miss the invisible ledge. He struck the edge of the door of the opposite terminus of the rocky tunnel with his knees, slipped backward, clutched desperately for a moment, and at last hung half within and half without the opening. But he was safe. For several minutes he dared not move, but clung weak and sweating where he lay. At last cautiously he drew himself well within the tunnel, and again he lay at full length upon the floor, fighting to regain control of his shattered nerves. When his knees struck the edge of the tunnel he had dropped the candle, presently hoping against hope that it had fallen upon the floor of the passageway rather than back into the depths of the well, he rose upon all fours and commenced a diligent search for the little tallow cylinder, which now seemed infinitely more precious to him than all the fabulous wealth of the hoarded ingots of Opar, and when at last he found it he clasped it to him and sank back sobbing and exhausted. For many minutes he lay trembling and broken, but finally he drew himself to a sitting posture, and, taking a match from his pocket, lighted the stump of the candle which remained to him. With the light he found it easier to regain control of his nerves, and presently he was again making his way along the tunnel in search of an avenue of escape. The horrid cry that had come down to him from above through the ancient well-shaft still haunted him, so that he trembled in terror at even the sounds of his own cautious advance. He had gone forward but a short distance when, to his chagrin, a wall of masonry barred his farther progress, closing the tunnel completely from top to bottom and from side to side. What could it mean? Werper was an educated and intelligent man. His military training had taught him to use his mind for the purpose for which it was intended. 
A blind tunnel such as this was senseless. It must continue beyond the wall. Someone, at some time in the past, had had it blocked for an unknown purpose of his own. The man fell to examining the masonry by the light of his candle. To his delight he discovered that the thin blocks of hewn stone of which it was constructed were fitted in loosely, without mortar or cement. He tugged upon one of them, and to his joy found that it was easily removable. One after another he pulled out the blocks, until he had opened an aperture large enough to admit his body, then he crawled through into a large, low chamber. Across this another door barred his way, but this too gave before his efforts, for it was not barred. A long dark corridor showed before him, but before he had followed it far his candle burned down until it scorched his fingers. With an oath he dropped it to the floor, where it sputtered for a moment, and went out. Now he was in total darkness, and again terror rode heavily astride his neck. What further pitfalls and dangers lay ahead he could not guess, but that he was as far as ever from liberty he was quite willing to believe. So depressing is utter absence of light to one in unfamiliar surroundings. Slowly he groped his way along, feeling with his hands upon the tunnel's walls, and cautiously with his feet ahead of him upon the floor, before he could take a single forward step. How long he crept on thus he could not guess, but at last, feeling that the tunnel's length was interminable, and exhausted by his efforts, by terror and loss of sleep, he determined to lie down and rest before proceeding farther. When he awoke there was no change in the surrounding blackness. He might have slept a second or a day, he could not know but that he had slept for some time was attested by the fact that he felt refreshed and hungry. Again he commenced his groping advance, but this time he had gone but a short distance when he emerged into a room which was lighted through an opening in the ceiling, from which a flight of concrete steps led downward to the floor of the chamber. Above him, through the aperture, Werper could see sunlight glancing from massive columns which were twined about by clinging vines. He listened, but he heard no sound other than the soughing of the wind through leafy branches, the hoarse cries of birds, and the chattering of monkeys. Boldly he ascended the stairway to find himself in a circular court. Just before him stood a stone altar stained with rusty brown discolorations, at the time Werper gave no thought to an explanation of these stains. Later their origin became all too hideously apparent to him. Beside the opening in the floor, just behind the altar, through which he had entered the court from the subterranean chamber below, the Belgian discovered several doors leading from the enclosure upon the level of the floor. Above and circling the courtyard was a series of open balconies, Monkeys scampered about the deserted ruins, and gaily-plumaged birds flitted in and out among the columns and the galleries far above. But no sign of human presence was discernible. Werper felt relieved. He sighed as though a great weight had been lifted from his shoulders. He took a step toward one of the exits, and then he halted, wide-eyed in astonishment and terror for almost at the same instant a dozen doors opened in the courtyard wall, and a horde of frightful men rushed in upon him. 
They were the priests of the flaming god of Opar, the same shaggy, knotted, hideous little men who had dragged Jane Clayton to the sacrificial altar at this very spot years before. Their long arms, their short and crooked legs, their close-set evil eyes, and their low, receding foreheads gave them a bestial appearance that sent a qualm of paralyzing fright through the shaken nerves of the Belgian. With a scream he turned to flee back into the lesser terrors of the gloomy corridors and apartments from which he had just emerged, but the frightful men anticipated his intentions. They blocked the way. They seized him, and though he fell, groveling upon his knees before them, begging for his life, they bound him and hurled him to the floor of the inner temple. The rest was but a repetition of what Tarzan and Jane Clayton had passed through. The priestesses came, and with them Law, the high priestess. Werper was raised and laid across the altar. Cold sweat exuded from his every pore as Law raised the cruel, sacrificial knife above him. The death chant fell upon his tortured ears. His staring eyes wandered to the golden goblets from which the hideous votaries would soon quench their inhuman thirst in his own warm life-blood. He wished that he might be granted the brief respite of unconsciousness before the final plunge of the keen blade. And then there was a frightful roar that sounded almost in his ears. The high priestess lowered her dagger. Her eyes went wide in horror. The priestesses, her votaresses, screamed and fled madly toward the exits. The priests roared out their rage and terror according to the temper of their courage. Werper strained his neck about to catch a sight of the cause of their panic, and when at last he saw it, he too went cold in dread, for what his eyes beheld was the figure of a huge lion standing in the center of the temple, and already a single victim lay mangled beneath his cruel paws. Again the lord of the wilderness roared, turning his baleful gaze upon the altar, Law staggered forward, reeled, and fell across Werper in a swoon. End of chapter 5